You're listening to an audiobook presentation of The Grendel's Shadow by Andrew Maine. You can purchase it for 99 cents on Amazon, on their Kindle store, on your Kindle, or on all major phones using the Kindle app, including iPhones, Androids, Blackberries, and Windows 7. It's also available on the Nook store and Apple's iBooks. Or you can buy this entire audio presentation uninterrupted or a physical copy at andrewmaincom books. Chapter 14 Westwood kept Carpenter company on the roof until sunrise. Occasionally, he went downstairs to give instructions. Alan brought them an improvised spotlight, but it had little effect. Carpenter offered an exam light in her operating room they could try to take out for next night. A head count in the morning revealed the same number of people as the count the night before. People went out to do their daily work. Westwood insisted they travel in large groups. Though the creature may prefer to attack at night, there wasn't any law saying it can't attack during the day. Nobody went out without an armed escort. Westwood and Allen grabbed breakfast and ate it as they followed Smythe and Carpenter to the Stevens' home. At the edge of town, it sat on a small plot with picket fencing around a garden. The barn next to the house served as Mr. Stevens' machine shop. Bits of rusted machinery and a pile of rusted rail littered the grass from in front in contrast to Mrs. Stevens' orderly garden. Alan wondered what would happen to the house now that the whole family was gone. They walked around the back of the house first. It was a single story with two rooms. A porch on the back extended out ten feet and overlooked the tree line. Furniture and much of the Stevens' belongings were still strewn about the back. Where the back door would have been was a gaping hole. The entire back of the house had been ripped open. It looks like a goddamn hurricane tore through here, exclaimed Alan. Westwood knelt down to look at some of the blood drops on the wooden deck. There's a lot more blood inside, said Carpenter. It looks like it chased one of them into the house. They couldn't get the door shut. And it just yanked the side of the house open like a paper box. Westwood looked at the opening. It was large enough to drive a ground car through. He stepped onto the porch and walked into the house. Shelves were knocked down. The mattress was torn apart. There were splatters of blood on the floor and the ceiling. He kicked at some of the broken glass with his foot. No bodies? Has anyone looked around here? We did a search with some dogs yesterday, but not too deep into the woods. We found the infant crushed under the dresser, but that was it. Westwood looked over at the dresser, knocked on its side, and a pool of blood on the floor near it. He felt his stomach turn. His hand touched the stock of his rifle. No bodies have been found at all besides the baby? He asked Carpenter. None, just lots of blood. Terminal amounts of blood. Something just didn't seem right to Westwood. He stepped outside and looked at the sky around the tree line, pulled a guidebook from his pack and turned to a page, showed it to Carpenter and Smythe. You get those around here? Yeah, said Carpenter. They're our version of a vulture. They look more like a bat, though. Anytime you get a dead animal, you'll see them flying around, waiting to eat. They're the first things we looked for when we couldn't find the bodies. It's odd, said Westwood. A predator, an occasional predator, will usually eat its kill not too far from where it took it down. The larger the predator, the closer they tend to finish it. 
Is it eating people whole? Asked Alan. No, you'd see some sign of that. Pools of blood, limbs. Westwood began to look at the tall grass around the house. He stepped into the grass and pointed. You can see splatter going off toward the trees. It's dragging them far. Real far. Westwood stepped back on the porch and took a long look at the trees into the edge of the property. Twisting, thick trunks snaked along the ground. He unslung his rifle and walked toward a long trunk vine that had ran parallel to the ground for twenty feet. Halfway between the trunk and the house, he turned back to look at the porch, then continued toward the tree. He hopped up on a low point, then scrambled up to the top of the trunk vine. It was nearly as broad as the porch. It was a straight shot to the back of the house. At night, the glow of the light in the house would be the first thing you'd see. He looked around the surface of the trunk and spotted what he was looking for. He pointed out several sets of three indentations that matched the claw marks of the track sketch. The other three looked at him, curious. This is where it perched. He looked at the nearby trunks and didn't see similar markings. I think it's just one animal. He hopped down from the tree and took a slow walk through the grass, looking for any kind of track. Huh. Westwood looked back and forth in the grass. It looks like two sets of track, going to and coming from the house. He felt the grass. But it looks like the same animal left these. To Alan, it just looked like grass. He trusted that to Westwood's trained eye, it was a flashing sign. Range can't be a problem for something that size, said Carpenter. No, it's not. But you want to know the one thing I've never seen in all my experiences on every world I've been to? Westwood crossed his arms and looked out at the tree line. I've never seen a predator carry two bodies away at the same time. He paused. This thing's coming back for the other body. Is that unusual? Asked Carpenter. No, he hesitated. Not for an animal that's got young to feed. You mean there's more than one? Asked an exasperated Smythe. At least one adult killer, raising one or more cubs on human flesh, which is an even bigger problem. If they see humans as its only food source. It's going to be even braver and bolder than the one we're dealing with. We just can't hope to catch this one as it prowls around town. We've got to follow it back to its nest and kill its offspring. Westwood walked over to the barn. Let's find that cannon. Find this beast's home and end this business. Chapter 15 They found the cannon and several cannonballs on Stephen's workbench, along with a keg of powder and an igniter. He'd done a good job putting it together. and It was surprisingly light when Westwood went to pick it up. Smythe took a look at the machine shop filled with handmade tools and steam-powered milling equipment. We have a local metal composite ceramic that we can make an iron forge. It's very durable. I suppose it's what he used. He was a very clever man, always good at improvising, he sighed. He and his family are going to be missed. Westwood put the cannon pieces into a burlap sack and slung it over his shoulders. They headed out of the barn and toward the livery, where the hunting expedition was going to be outfitted. It had been agreed that Carpenter would go along with them. Smythe had reached his journey's end, and she was rather insistent on it. No one disputed that she was the best shot in town. As the stable came into view, Alan stopped walking. 
Oh, no, anything but those. It's the fastest way. It's fine with me if you want to stay here. One less body to drag back. Westwood turned to Carpenter. Present company excluded. Alan looked at the three large brush birds saddled up and tied to a post. The only fate worse than death for him by one of these beasts or the creature they were after would have been a verbal beating from his publisher for skipping out on the most important part of the journey. One of the birds gave him the evil eye he'd become familiar with. Alan gritted his teeth and stared back. The bird looked away as if it were bored. That's one small victory, he thought. Smythe walked over holding a map. We've got everything you asked for in the saddlebags and we're buttressing up the buildings like you said. Westwood took the map from him. Good. If you stayed locked down, I think you're going to be okay for another day or so. At least until he gets real hungry or pissed. He traced his finger along the map. X marks had been placed where all the killings had taken place. They formed a corridor leading northeast from Grassy Bend and through a valley. An exposed rock ridge ran along the upper end. Westwood showed it to Carpenter and Smythe. Are there many caves up there? There are a few, said Smythe. There's some occasional prospecting done up there, but not since the trouble. Is that where you think the den is? asked Carpenter. It'd be my first guess, since now we know, or at least assume, it's going back to a fixed location. How far out is this ridge? Three or four days by foot. You could make it there before nightfall on the brushbirds if you hurry, answered Smythe. Westwood pulled open a saddlebag on the nearest mountain and looked inside. I don't like the idea of getting there at nightfall. I'll have to push extra hard. He pulled out an object packed in thick cloth and unwrapped it. It was a thick glass bottle with a dark fluid inside. A wick corked the top. Is that... is that napalm? asked Alan. Westwood repacked it, then went to another pack and pulled out a metal canister and made sure the top was sealed tightly. Tossed it to Alan, checking the seal on several others. We had them packed with nails, said Carpenter. Alan looked at the grenade in his hands. Not exactly sporting he said before he could shut his mouth. Westwood gave him a long, cold stare. He pulled the cigar from his mouth and squashed it under his foot. Mr. Allen, I've tolerated your company so far, and in fact, I've found that you're capable of acting admirably when the occasion calls for it. You go back, and you look at the 27 names written on that blackboard in the hall, and you come back here and tell us what sporting should be. I'm sorry, Allen searched for words. Grenades, napalm, it just wasn't what I was expecting. Give me a pen laser and a pair of night vision goggles, and I'll have this thing killed before dinner time. Fortunately, the rules here don't allow for it. Napalm, grenades, cannons are fine, so I'm going to use whatever I can to stop it. I'd set this whole town on fire if it saved one more life. He turned to Smythe and Carpenter. No offense. I'd help you light the fire, said Carpenter. A red-faced Alan said nothing. Westwood turned back to checking the packs and the saddles. Any advice for first-time riders? Carpenter stroked the nearest bird. I'll take the lead on Miss Bonnie. You can follow up on the rear on Lionheart. Mr. Allen will ride King Louie in the middle. Just hold on. She reached into her side bag and pulled out two thick-looking pills. You can take these for nausea. Westwood passed on the pill, not wanting it to affect his aim. Alan pocketed his just in case. Carpenter put one foot in the stirrup 
hopped into her mount. Westwood did the same with equal grace. Alan looked at King Louis. King Louis looked back at him. He placed one cautionary foot in the stirrup and hoisted himself up. King Louis remained steady as a rock and didn't try to buck him or devour his entrails. Maybe this wasn't going to be so bad after all, Alan thought. Then Carpenter made a click-click sound, and Alan wished for the very first time he was back in the relative safety of his landing capsule seat. He had yet another kind of nausea to add to that list. Chapter 16 A few of the townspeople had gathered to wave them off. The Noyce brothers, Ken and Bruce, cheered them from on top of the Civic Building, where they were mounting Carpenter's operating light. Alan tried to hold on for life as his bird chased after Carpenter and Miss Bonnie. She rode it gracefully like she and the animal were one. She looked over his shoulder and wasn't surprised to see that Westwood rode it like he'd been riding them all his life as well. The mounted brushbirds took leaping strides toward the tree line, then pounced up on the trunk vines. Alan should have expected that. They weren't going to go under the twisted trunks. The birds were going to travel over them by jumping from trunk to trunk. He reached for the nausea pill, but it fumbled out of his pocket and fell to the ground. With no other option, he gripped King Louie tightly and tried to mirror Carpenter's riding posture as closely as possible. The key, he quickly learned, was to try and understand where the bird was going to jump next. It was then a matter of riding the bird like a boat over the crest of a wave. Still nauseating but the ability to see it coming made the experience less jarring. Soon he was able to get something of a groove with King Louie where he didn't worry so much about knocking himself out with his own kneecap or getting bucked in the head. After several minutes of almost smooth riding, King Louie turned back and let out a squawk. Alan decided to believe it was congratulations for a job well done. It took them 40 minutes to get beyond the forest that outlined the town of Grassy Bend. The first part of the rock formation that formed in the upper valley began to jut out of the trees. Carpenter heeled her mount and waited for Alan and Westwood to catch up. She pointed towards an open piece of farmland off in the distance. That's the Regis place. Took the entire family out two at a time over three nights. That was when we realized it was getting closer and not going away. She made the click-click sound and she and her mount took off again. As the ridgeline became more prominent, she steered them along the open ground before it became too steep. Alan appreciated the slightly smoother ride the flat ground provided. King Louie and the other mounts seemed indifferent. Behind him, Alan caught a glimpse of Westwood, practicing dry-firing his rifle. Holding on to his mount with just his legs, he'd bring the rifle up and pull the trigger on the empty chamber. Occasionally, he made an adjustment to his sight. Alan figured he must have a pretty good estimate of how accurate his own aim was to be doing that kind of fine-tuning. Carpenter steered them toward a clearing by the lake so they could water their mounts. Westwood pulled out the map to look at their position. They'd made good time and could expect to hit the first part of the upper ridge well before nightfall. A herd of yawns was gathering in a marshy area at the other end of the lake. Westwood looked out at the two mothers with small calves. Huh, that's interesting. What's that? asked Carpenter. Our creature is an opportunistic, eats most likely carrion when it finds it, live food when it needs to. I count six calves out there. Isn't that kind of high? I think so. On the farm, that was normal, but not in the wild. 
What does that mean? The animal's walking right past them and into human territories. Not like it just found a new food source, it's decided that we're all it wants to eat. Westwood looked out at the map. Although this thing hunts at night, from the time of the killings, I guess it leaves its nest in late afternoon. We're going to run right into it? Asked Alan, trying not to sound panicked. I think we'll stick to the edge of the tree line near the ridge. This thing probably stays in the thicker part of the forest. Probably. Probably, repeated Alan. He hoped it was an educated guess and not a wish. They kept to the open ground as much as possible, only darting through the trunk vine forest when it couldn't be avoided. Carpenter made sure they kept in a tight formation. Westwood was constantly scanning the tree line, looking for any kind of danger. Occasionally, they'd scare up a wild brush bird the size of the ones they were on. Their own birds would just honk at their wild cousins with disdain and keep moving. Finally, they came to the first part of the upper ridge, where Westwood wanted to look for caves. They brought their mounts to a stop and hopped off so he could get a closer look at the ground and surrounding area. Grendel's Shadow is available on Amazon for 99 cents. Buy it on your desktop or your Kindle. You can also use the Kindle app, available on the iPad as well as all major phones, including iPhones, Blackberries, Windows 7, and Android. You can also look for it on the Nook Store and Apple's iBooks. If you'd like to purchase this audiobook in its entirety without interruption, or a physical copy of Grendel's Shadow, head to andrewmain.com books. This presentation has been read by Justin Robert Young.